Hey, Gospel City Church, thanks so much for joining us online together as a church. And I know many of you are joining us that are not normally a part of Gospel City Church. We're so excited about reopening the gathering together that will take place online and in person on July the 5th. And so we are ready for those days to come quickly. I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. So grateful for good fathers out there that are doing the hard work of raising the next generation. Last week, we introduced to you the final series in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. I really want to encourage you right now to get your Bibles open to Luke chapter 22. And if you've been a part of this series, you understand that we've been in this about a year and a half, almost two years now, and we're coming into the final three chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And Everything in Luke, actually everything in the Bible is leading up to the climactic point of Jesus going to the cross. And so we've entitled this series, Lead Me to the Cross. If you're a follower of Jesus or if you're contemplating becoming a follower of Jesus, you have to know that following Jesus means you follow Him to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, the writer of the Gospel of Luke records a statement that Jesus makes. He says, If anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me to the cross. And so today's a new day, which means we get up, we grab the cross, and we follow Jesus to the place of the cross. Of course, if you're a follower of Christ, you know that the cross is the place where the judgment of God met the sin of man in Jesus. Jesus atoned for our sin. He died in my place as a substitute on that cross for all who will repent and believe. He was raised to new life so that all those who will repent and believe can know Him and have eternal peace with the Father. Of course, there's a national conversation going on right now that is about race and injustice. And as a Christian, you need to understand that you have no grid to even interpret injustice unless you daily go to the cross where the ultimate act of injustice took place. And so it's so essential that we go to the cross and we hear what Jesus would teach us there at the cross. A few weeks ago, I invited you on a journey in lamenting the injustices that we're seeing in the world and listening and learning. And one of my greatest burdens as a pastor is that so many people who identify with Christ are being discipled more by cable news and talk radio and social media than actually going to the cross of Christ to learn what Christ would have to say. Well, today we're going to do that. We're going to hear the voice of Jesus teach us something about how to live in light of all that's going on in our culture. Before we dive into it, I want to invite you into another scene. I want you to invite, I want to invite you into the third grade classroom of Pastor Trent. Now, as an eight-year-old there at Woodland Hills Elementary School, I have a very distinct memory of a math lesson that I was receiving there while I was introduced to new symbols to help me correctly understand numbers. And I was introduced to this symbol. Do you know what this symbol is all about? Does everybody understand this? Can you remember back to third grade? 
This is what we call the greater than symbol. Now, I was also introduced on that day to this symbol. This is the lesser than symbol. And I remember my very limited third grade brain trying to figure out how am I going to remember which direction this thing goes when I am comparing greater or lesser than numbers. And it was not until Mrs. Pierce drew in the teeth of an alligator that I understood that the alligator always wants to eat the greater meal. And that fixed it for me. Never had a problem from that point on with math when it was talking about greater than and less than. Now, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, what I've understood is that sometimes disciples don't do a very good job of understanding what Jesus considers greater than. When we begin to compare ourselves with others, when we begin to compare greatness, worldly greatness, to kingdom greatness, so often we get it wrong and we think that this is greater than that. And what we're going to learn from Luke chapter 22 today is a new lesson because in the lesson Jesus teaches us, he turns greater than upside down and reorients our thinking and redefines our understanding of greater than and less than. You see, there's something so broken in our hearts, every human heart. There's something so broken that I tend to think of myself greater than others. I think about my interest being greater than others. I think about my value being greater than the value of others. I think about my opinions being greater than the opinions of others, my perspective, my views, greater than others. Not only do that as an individual, do you know what we tend to do? We tend to expand the scope and we think of our family greater than others. And you expand that a little further and pretty soon you're into a people group being considered greater than others. And if you are in a majority culture like I am, it is very easy for our default thinking to think that those in the majority culture are greater than those in the minority culture. And now we're beginning to see the spillover of what's happening in our culture. And when we go to the cross, our understanding of greater than and less than changes under the teaching of Jesus. So let's begin to read here in Luke chapter 22. The first thing that I want you to see is this. The closer I get to the cross, the more Jesus changes my definition of greatness. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. A dispute also rose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now remember, we're picking up this scene immediately after or maybe even at the table of the Lord's Supper. And while Jesus is predicting that in the next 24 hours He is going to perform the greatest act of self-sacrifice and self-denial and humility, the disciples started debate about which one of them is the greatest. Now, 
12 disciples, and like us, they had a tendency to like greater and lesser than arguments. They wanted to rank themselves 1 to 12. And I guess they already figured out who the worst disciple was. That would have been Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and he'd already left by then. And, and so he got the number 12 spot, but then they began to rank themselves and compare themselves, debating which one was number one. Verse 25 says, He, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. This is not the way disciples think. At least they shouldn't think this way. So Jesus begins to redefine their definitions of greatness. Not so with you. Rather... Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. This is where we get the concept of servant leadership. Verse 27, for who is greater? So now here's the math equation. Who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? And he answers it based on the worldly definition. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones and judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus turns their definition of greater than and less than upside down. Now, I don't know, maybe if we, when we get together again soon, maybe on July the 5th, when we all come back to church, hopefully we don't make the same mistake that these disciples make. In beginning to compare ourselves, who's greater than those who watch online, those who gather in person, those who wear a mask, those who choose not to wear a mask. That's when we begin to get in trouble as disciples because our value and our worth and our dignity is not based on worldly definitions of greatness. The world defines greatness based on your test scores and your net worth and your athletic ability and your attractiveness and your Instagram followers and the square footage of your home and a million other things that will have zero value in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to understand the true definition of greatness. Now, now please understand, in this passage, Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for wanting to achieve greatness. I hope you want to be a great disciple. I want to be a great disciple. But in order to become a great disciple, you have to understand the true definition, the kingdom definition of greatness. The desire to be great is God-given. There should be something in your soul that wants to achieve and pursue greatness. The problem is that most humans pursue it in a God-forbidden way. A God-given desire to be great, pursued with God-forbidden ways, ends up hurting other people. 
It's sinful. And it's at the very root of all the issues that we're seeing in our culture right now. Ambition is not the enemy of humility. Selfish ambition is the enemy of humility. And so there should be a God-given pursuit and desire for greatness pursued with incredible humility because Jesus equates the two. Sin has rewired our hearts to pursue greatness in ways that trample others in the pursuit of our own greatness. But in, in going to the cross with Jesus, He redefines our definition of greatness. He redirects our pathway to greatness. The pathway to greatness is paved with service, humility, and sacrifice. And Jesus modeled that for us. J.C. Ryle is a, a preacher from the previous century, and he said it in a way that I can't improve on. So I want to read to you what he said about this passage. He said, The hero in Christ's army is not the man who has rank and title and dignity and chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. It is the man who looks not on his own things, but the things of others. It is the man who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful of all, with a hand to help all, and a heart to feel for all. It is a man who spends and is spent to make the vice and the misery of the world less, to bind up the brokenhearted, to befriend the friendless, to cheer the sorrowful, to enlighten the ignorant, and to raise the poor. This is the truly great man in the eyes of God. The world may ridicule his labors and deny his sincerity of motives, but while the world is sneering, God is pleased. This is the man who is walking most closely in the steps of Christ. And without going to the cross, without humbling yourself, embracing self-denial and self-sacrifice, we will step on others, we will exalt ourselves, and we will pursue sinful, worldly passions in order to be great in the eyes of the world. Please understand, the cross teaches us there are no individuals, no groups, and no races that are greater than others. Jesus brings us to a place where we humble ourselves. And those of us that have success and achievement and education and power and wealth and money in this world, we understand that God gives us those things to help others, not to exercise superiority as we compare ourselves to others, to feel greater or superior in comparison to another person because of your skin color or your family of origin or your heritage or your personal achievement is sinful and it must be crucified at the cross. If that's your attitude, you don't understand the cross and Jesus invites you to come with him to the cross. As your pastor, I invite you to come to the cross and see the place of humility and love and sacrifice where the greatest, ultimate person in all the universe 
did not think of himself as superior, but laid his life down for his friends. I don't know about you, if you live in the Granger, Mishawaka, South Bend area, you've noticed that our community has been putting in roundabouts where there used to be stop signs and intersections. Have you noticed this? And uh, I don't know, it's taken a few years now for people to actually figure out how to get through these things without running into one another. Uh, I remember I used to pull up to a stop sign and you just kind of size each other up and it's like, should I go? Should you go? And maybe your car's more expensive, so maybe you should go. Or maybe your car's bigger, could crush my car, you should go. And we would, we would defer to one another a little bit and sometimes we would not get that right either. But roundabouts are so much more easy to navigate. You don't even have to stop if you know what you're doing. You don't have to run into each other. You just kind of merge and you move together. This is what it looks like when we go to the cross and we don't consider somebody else greater than or less than others. We're just all moving in traffic together. The intersection of every human being with another human being is an opportunity to do one of two things. If in that moment that you meet that other human being, you feel superior, you size each other up, it's just natural, I'm just looking like, am I smarter, prettier, more influential, older, stronger, and and we just do this. It's, It's part of our broken fallenness. In that moment, if you feel superior, you have one of two choices. You can either begin to control the other person or you can serve the other person. If in that moment there's a worldly greatness that you have, you can use that worldly greatness either to control or to serve the one who is less than. And the greatest disciple always chooses to serve according to Jesus. But there's another temptation. In that moment, when you intersect with another human being and you begin to size the other person up, you're like, I think I'm inferior. I may be in the minority culture here. I I, I may not be the smartest or the prettiest. In that moment, you have one of two choices. You have the opportunity either to flee because you feel unsafe, or you have the opportunity to learn and to come up under. And for those of us that are in a majority culture, It's an opportunity to open the door and lift up and empower others. The cross is the ultimate place and the ultimate picture where we see true kingdom greatness. The one with the greatest power, Jesus. The one with the greatest wealth, infinite wealth, infinite influence. Do you know what he did? He he chose to humble himself in service to make those who were inferior, great. He lifted us up. It's a daily encounter with the cross of Christ that has two effects on those who desire true greatness. Do you desire true greatness? You need a daily encounter with the cross and you'll, it'll, that cross will have two effects on your life. Number one, The cross crucifies self-exalting, people-oppressing pursuits of greatness. And number two, the cross inspires us to spend whatever worldly greatness we have to make others great. Now, based on that, where do you rank as a disciple? 
Jesus turns our definition of greatness upside down. You want to be great in the kingdom? I want to be great in the kingdom. I want you to be great in the kingdom. So how can we achieve that? Real quickly, I want to give you just 10 contrasts between worldly greatness and kingdom greatness. And I want to challenge you right now, do not attempt to write this down. You'll get mad at me because I'm going to go way too fast for you to write it down. There'll be a link. You can probably click on it even now and we'll send it to you. You, you can get it, okay? But just 10 contrasts here. And, and, and this, this is what makes great dads. This is what makes great pastors. This is what makes great presidents and great employers and great husbands and great leaders and great bosses. Those with worldly greatness desire to be served. They want everybody else waiting on them, bringing them the stuff at the table, doing everything for them. But those who achieve kingdom greatness are driven to serve others. Those with worldly greatness they have a desire to be a success in the eyes of the world. But those with kingdom greatness desire to make others a success. Those with worldly greatness feel superior when they compare themselves with others. Those with kingdom greatness feel the need for mercy and grace in comparison to the holiness of God. Those with worldly greatness use their power to protect their position. Those with kingdom greatness use their power to protect and empower others. Those with worldly greatness gravitate, gravitate toward people in power. Those with kingdom greatness gravitate toward people in need. Those with worldly greatness are quick to share how much they know. I mean, they're real quick to tell you everything that they think and their opinions and their solutions and what they think the problem is. Those with kingdom greatness are overwhelmed with how much they still have to learn. Those with kingdom greatness are defensive when criticized. They put up walls because they don't want to feel inferior. But those with kingdom greatness invite criticism as an opportunity to grow. Those with worldly greatness have a critical spirit that detects problems. Those with kingdom greatness are critical thinkers who offer solutions. Those with worldly greatness think this way. This church is so privileged to have me. Those with kingdom greatness think this way. I don't deserve how richly I've been blessed by the ministries of this church. What a privilege to serve. It's a wonder they would want me at all. And finally, those with worldly greatness turn away from God when they experience trials. Why is that? Because they're so great. I don't deserve to go through this. God, why am I sick? Why did I lose my job? Don't you know how great I am? Don't you exist? God, you, you, you exist to serve me. And because they don't have a proper theology of trial, they don't understand when bad things happen to them. Because in their mind, they don't deserve it. They're so great. But for those with kingdom greatness, they turn toward God in trials. They don't wonder why 
bad things happen to good people, they wonder why anything good happens at all. Because in humility, we understand we don't deserve anything. And it's that posture of humility that allows us to live out the cross of Christ to a world that knows nothing of true greatness. The greatest disciple serves those who are powerless, poor, and oppressed. The greatest church preaches a gospel that creates humble servants sent to those that need grace the most. The greatest nation builds its policies into laws that protect and make provision for those who are under-resourced and most vulnerable. The last thing that Jesus says here in verse 30, it's, it's kind of interesting. He's telling these heady disciples that they've stayed with Him in the trial, and then He promises that He's going to give them a kingdom, and they are going to sit on thrones. It's amazing. Do you see what He's saying? If you will humble yourself and become a servant in this world, no act of service will, will ever be unrewarded in the next. You want true greatness in the next, in the, in the next life, in the kingdom of God? Then use your opportunity, your power, your influence, and your worldly greatness to serve so you can be great in the kingdom of God. Now, here's the next point. The closer we get to the cross... The closer we get to the cross, the more Scripture defends me in the face of opposition. This is what we're going to do. We're going to skip the next paragraph there. You might notice in your Bible it's talking about Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. It's a familiar story. We're going to deal with that next week. I'm going to lump that into another section next week. I want to skip down to the next paragraph there. Verse 35 says this. He said to them, When I sent you with no money bags or knapsack or sandal, did you lack anything? They said, no, we didn't lack anything. Verse 36, and he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no, no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, Jesus is calling to their attention, reminding them that previously he had sent them out and said, don't take a knapsack, don't take any money, don't even take an extra set of clothes. You're not going to need them. And the reason they didn't need them then when they went to go preach the gospel, because at that time, Jesus was very popular. And uh, they could just kind of lay the Jesus card on the table, and somehow their meal would get taken care of. And, and it, they had a very favorable uh, uh, response. The people invited them to be a part of their community. But now, he says, very important transition piece here. Verse 36, but... Now, what's happening now? In the next 24 hours, Jesus is going to be portrayed, betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, dead. His popularity is gone. And because they're associated with Jesus, they're going to need to make provision to take care of themselves. And so he tells them, you might want to get a knapsack, you want to, might want to use some money, you're probably going to need some money, you might even want to get a sword. And, and really the teaching here is Jesus is giving his disciples, and that extends to us, the permission, even the command, to use as many means as possible to preach the gospel, to call people to repent of sin. And, 
And that's good news because we've got some resources around here. You've got resources. It's part of your paycheck and you've got a house and you've got a car and apparently you have some technology because you're watching me right now and we've got some technology because we're pushing this out to you. And, and as a church, we've invested in a building and, and that's, that's just simply a tool. And Jesus is saying, you might want to get some stuff. You're, you're allowed to use stuff to accomplish the mission. In verse 37, he says this, For I tell you, that this scripture, underline the word scripture there in verse 37, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. What scripture? He's getting ready to quote from probably the most important chapter in the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah chapter 53. And Luke just records one statement of it. He says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here we have two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. It's almost comical. It, you know, they found a couple of swords and Jesus like, yeah, you don't really understand here. The war you're about to face is going to be a spiritual war. Two swords, uh, 11 guys against um, the entire Roman Empire. Good luck with that. What you're going to need is to understand Isaiah 53 and its prophecy about me. What is in Isaiah 53? It is the description of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And here's what it says in its entirety, actually picking up in verse 3. He, Jesus, this was written 700 years before the cross. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one for, from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed and him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. It's a description of what happened on the cross. There was a, there was a cosmic, doctrinal, theological transaction where Jesus was treated as if he had committed every act of injustice, as if he was a racist, as if he was a self-righteous bigot. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross and he wanted his disciples to understand, I'm about to fight the battle on the cross that none of your swords and none of your money and none of your means is going to be able to accomplish because it is a... It is a cosmic transaction that you need. And so it's understanding that the message of the Bible from cover to cover was all pointing to the cross and what Jesus would accomplish on that cross. Do you understand the Bible that you have is not just a book that contains good advice on how to be nicer and gentler. That, there's some of that, but all of it flows from the price that was paid on the cross. The story of the Bible is not good advice. It is the good news of what Christ did on behalf of sinners like you and me. And so the closer I get to the cross, the more Scripture defends me in the face of opposition. Here's the final point. 
the closer I get to the cross, the more temptation I will face to close my eyes. Let's pick up the story here in verse 39. It's a familiar story of Jesus praying in what we call the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, verse 39. And He came out and went, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed Him. What is the definition of a disciple? Those who follow Jesus. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus to the place of pain and the place of prayer. They followed Jesus to the place of prayer. Verse 40, And when He came to the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter temptation. And He withdrew with about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in, an, in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Whenever you're facing the most difficult circumstances, the place that we go as disciples is the place of prayer. And if you're like me, this has been a week of prayer. As, as you continue to see the things that just have such complexities to them, and the, the, the issues of race and injustice and what does that mean for us and in our time and what did it mean back then? And listen, we, we, can, we can talk about policy changes and, and law enforcement, but for those of us who follow Jesus, the first thing to do is to pray. On Thursday, the Great Commission Collective, that is the network of churches that we're a part of, declared a day of lament. And all throughout the day, I was tuning in and, and praying. And that night, I had the opportunity of leading a national uh, prayer meeting on Facebook Live. And, and uh, in those moments, just to pray. And, and then even on Friday, to join with Transformation Ministries and march and pray and uh, just declare peace over our city. And then even last night... As others were tuning into other things, I tune into, tuned into the, the Gospel Coalition uh, evening of lament and just prayed with other brothers. And I've invited you to listen and to learn and, and even hear the prayers of others. Listen, before you start offering your opinions about what needs to be fixed, have you followed Jesus to the place of prayer? And, and understand this as disciples, the, the, the place of the cross is not is a really ugly, bloody place. It's a place that we don't want to look. We don't want to see Jesus bloody hanging on the cross in our place. It offends us. But if you can keep your eyes open, unlike these disciples, let me tell you five things you'll see very quickly. First of all, you'll see the will of God in your surrender. This is where we, we come to the place of prayer and the first thing that we pray is, Lord, as, as I'm expressing what I want from you, I surrender my will to your will. 
Jesus brought His will under the will of the Father, which is an incredible concept to think that Jesus had a will, and yet He surrendered. He didn't want to go to the cross, and yet He knew that was His destiny, His purpose, and the purpose for which He came. And so He surrendered His will to the Father. And, and I, I know that for me, there is a daily surrender, because I want some things. I don't want to do some things. I don't want to go to a place of pain. And in the place of prayer, we come and we align our will under the will of God. If you could see everything God sees, you would not question anything God does. And that's the point at which you pull your will under the will of the Father. But you got to stay awake. you got to keep your eyes open in order for that to happen. If you, if you keep your eyes open, you're going to see the strength of God in your weakness. Jesus here was strengthened by an angel. And I, I believe that God has these warriors that He assigns to territory. And, and that's the story of these angels that act as messengers of God to remind us of truth and encourage us in the middle of pain. Jesus had a ministering angel for Him. If Jesus needed a ministering angel, how much more do I need one? Lord, send the angels to help and strengthen us in time of need. If you can keep your eyes open at the cross, you'll see the wrath of God in Jesus on the cross. The Scripture mentions a cup, and Jesus says, if it's your will, would you let this cup pass? I don't want to drink what's in this cup. So the question is, what's in the cup? Throughout the Old Testament, it's imagery of the wrath of God, a, a container for the wrath of God on sin. Here's what we learn from that. The full wrath of God has yet to be poured out on the world. It's coming. It's called the day of the Lord. Until that time, do you know what's happening to that cup? It's filling up with every sin, with every iniquity, with every act of hatred. There's another drop that goes into the cup of God's wrath. And on that cross, the Father offered it to Jesus. And Jesus said, I don't want it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And He embraced that cup. And on the cross, in His pain, in His agony, He took the wrath of God upon Himself to save all those who would repent of sin and place their faith in Christ. But listen, if you reject Jesus... All of the wrath for your sin that's in that cup is going to fall on you in judgment. If you will open your eyes to what Jesus did on that cross and understand the greatest act of humility was for the person who needed the greatest act of grace. And if you open your heart to Him, the wrath of God can be averted because of what Christ did on that cross. If you see, keep your eyes open, another thing you're going to see is the grace of God in your temptation. Jesus is, again says, pray, rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. All of us face temptation to doubt and run and judge and express hatred and to make ourselves greater than others. That's why we need to pray that God would turn us from those temptations to self-exalting, people-oppressing attitudes and embrace what we learn at the foot of the cross. There's one more thing, and that is we will see
the family of God in the church. In the book of John, John, the disciple of Jesus, records for us what Jesus was actually praying. And do you know one of the things that he prayed? He prayed that we, the disciples of Jesus, would be one. Not divided, aligned under the authority of the Word of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is not until we get to the cross where we lay what divides us aside and we align ourselves under Christ. And then we understand that all that we see in the world is the result of sin and all that we need is a proper understanding of the cross. Could I invite you to bow your heads right now? And just in this moment, would you ask Jesus to redefine your definition of greatness? Would you lay down your pride? Would you take up your cross? Would you humbly adopt the posture of a servant? And no matter how much greatness it costs you in the world, would you consider kingdom greatness greater than worldly greatness. Jesus, thank you for the example of going to the cross on our behalf. You endured agony and pain and sorrow, sweat drops of blood, the greatest act of humility to embrace the greatest act of injustice. And Father, we pray that you would heal what's broken in our hearts that causes us to think of ourselves as greater than anyone else. As your disciples, Lord, we adopt the position of servants. Use your church to step into what's broken in this world, to serve those who need grace the most. And Lord, I pray that we would exalt what you have done on the cross in our place as a substitute for our sin. The only thing that can heal this world is the gospel of Jesus. Make us servants to speak and to show the mercy that's available there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.